So you're doing both of them at the same time. Steady drumbeat from the product-led growth model of value, quality, advocacy, and complemented by smart business justification of why this is the right tool at the high end with the people writing the checks. And I think if you have both, that's, that's unstoppable. Today we're speaking with Megan Huer. She's a veteran of account-based marketing. She's worked with Gartner, Peppers and Rogers, Serious Decisions, Forrester, Engageo, and now she's with a consulting group in the Bay Area called Winning by Design. In this episode, she shared with us incredible insight into best practices around account-based marketing for high ACV deals. Enjoy. Is, is kind of a combination of things. Um, I've got a background in um, consulting. I did consulting for Gartner, for Satmetrics, for the Peppers and Rogers group, for people old enough to remember the one-to-one future books that were a big deal back in the early 2000s. Um, great work, terrible lifestyle, right? You're traveling mm. full-time, um, to your point about going from a smaller house to a much larger home. Um, consulting is really, really interesting and great at certain points in your career, but it takes its toll on the lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so then I went from that to being a practitioner in marketing, and I've worked for Fortune 250 companies. I've worked for venture-backed startups, um, kind of a range of different types of companies as a marketing leader, as a marketing and sales effectiveness leader, um, just all different kinds of things. And um, probably though the thing I'm known the most for is the almost 12 years I spent at Serious Decisions. So B2B um, research and advisory firm. I joined them when they were 12 people. Um, and uh, two years ago, the company was sold to Forrester when we were, gosh, pushing in 400, I'm going to say, people. And um, it was really fun to be part of that growth story, you know, really kind cool. of learning how to build a company and scale a company and create a recurring revenue service. So essentially, instead of software as a service, it was advisory as a service, right? Yeah. Where, where people who wanted to be better at their roles in sales, marketing, or product could sign up for a seat and get access to research and coaching and support to help them do their jobs better, right? And get to the outcomes that their businesses needed from them. Um, and that was fun. You know, it was really fun. And and that's where um, I started the account-based marketing practice at Sirius about seven or eight years ago. Um, kind of before it was a thing, um, I had sort of always worked in markets that were very defined, right? Where you knew who you needed to sell to, you knew them, they knew you. The trick was, how do you get them to say yes to you, right? How do you get them to pick you over other options? Um, and then also how do you sustain and grow those relationships when you've got a finite universe, the people that you win, you got to keep them. You got to right. make sure they want to keep buying from you. So, yeah. um, that was just how I approached marketing. You know, it wasn't a thing per se. It wasn't you know, a trend. It was just smart strategy. Right. Um, so that's kind of how, you know, I, I got involved in ABM. Um, when I left Sirius, I went to run marketing for an ABM platform provider who of course was also promptly acquired. Um, mm -hmm. 
so uh, I took the opportunity when I left there to really think about, you know, sort of what do I want to be when I grow up? Um, and I went back <laughs> right. to, funny enough, and, um, and to thinking about, you know, the work I really, truly love is consulting. I love yeah. solving problems. I love helping yeah. companies. I love the challenge of getting in and learning a new and different business with every customer, right? And getting to know them and their people and their particular challenges and their particular opportunities and, and talents and gifts as well. So um, it's the funny enough, right? This crazy pandemic we're all leave it, living through um, makes it possible to do that work um, without having to have the horrible lifestyle that got me right. out of that work to begin with, right? Totally. Without the full-time travel and the yeah. crazy hours. And now you can be a great consultant and still have a great family life too. And that's yeah. um, sort of the best of both worlds as far as I'm concerned. And that's what led me to the role that I have now um, as a managing director at Winning by Design. That's, that's awesome. That's a great story. So in terms of account-based marketing, what, where is the line or is there a line between account-based marketing and account-based sales? Ha, um, there are two sides of a coin, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I would argue, I mean, it's, it's, there are different go-to-market models, right? If you've got a high volume market where you are selling to a ton of companies and basically you're taking inbound, um, or your market is so broad that yeah. you haven't defined only accounts that you can sell to, I would say, mm -hmm. nope, not account-based. Now, I yeah. would argue every market probably could use some ICP definition. You really can't sell to everybody or, or you don't right. sell to everybody, even if you could. Right. So we'll put that aside. So I, I'm, okay. I'm a big fan of defining your universe because I think it makes life easier. But yeah. um, really, account-based marketing and account-based selling are simply the recognition that as a business, you have decided who it is you want to sell to and who it is you do sell to. And now sales and marketing, and I would add in customer success or whatever you have in place for post-sale, um, has to be tuned to whatever that go-to-market model is. And that means marketing and sales need to understand, um, and in particular, I'll say marketing has to understand the goals of sales, the accounts that they're focused on, and then the buying groups within those accounts that they need to engage, what their needs are through that process. Um, but it's, it's really just, uh, it's just a focus on sharing and understanding of, of who you're selling to and, and how they buy and what they need after they buy. Yeah. And so in terms of the, you know, if there's varying lengths of sales cycles. So um, especially for a software company that's going moving up market to mid-market enterprise, um, at least traditionally, before the pandemic, maybe it's changed. Um, sales cycles can be 12 months, 18 months, two years. I mean, especially if you go onto the enterprise side. Yeah. So I would imagine that most of that kind of like before I got married, I would always see like people being really busy before like the wedding. And they're like, I got to straighten my tie and I got to like <laughs> do things. But I'm like, what, what else is there to do besides like straighten your tie? You know, like yeah. what's, what is even involved And in the way that I see, like my perception of like an enterprise sales deal is like for 12 to 18 months, what are you even doing? Are you just circling back? Are you circling back? Like ready, 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 ready. <laughs> How do you keep those accounts engaged? And is that like a sales thing or like, is it a marketing thing? Like, cause you know, on that transactional on those like huge, huge TAM, it's like $10 a seat kind of thing. You can do keyword bidding and you can just like get your accounts that way because they're just like, they're searching for the thing. And then you like your product maybe is like $3 cheaper per month and then boom, you got it. Um, 
But if you've got uh, this complex sale with multiple decision makers, how do you how do you engage them from for that first moment? The the very the introduction to even the problem, even if they're not shopping, how do you engage them in that first moment? And then how do you stay with them for six months, 12 months, 18 months without having to go, hey, just circling back, um, <laughs> where are you guys on this? <laughs> like, how do you stay engaged for that, that long period of time? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things at play. Right. In an enterprise sales cycle, especially the really high end ones where you're talking millions of dollars, even if it's divided up over you know, monthly payments, it's still a chunk of money. And depending on how the company is thinking about where that investment comes from, you know, they have or haven't allocated budget for it. Right. So and then if they haven't, who needs to approve it? Where's the money going to come from? If they have approved it, how do you, you know, get the permission then for them to spend it on you and who's involved in that? And when you get into purchases of that type, especially with software, um, what we find is part of that 12 to 18 month cycle is with the ratifiers. That was a study before I left Serious Decisions that we found um, sort of the role of the ratifier was getting bigger and bigger. So that means finance, legal, security, IT, if you're a line of business buyer, like marketing or sales um, or HR, you know, name your favorite, right? Um, there are a lot of approvals in place before people are going to say, yep, you're allowed to set, you're, you're allowed to be part of our stack. And that can take a really long time, right? The bigger the company, the more people's permission you have to get. Um, so I would say, in some situations, it's that, right? It's just sort of the natural, unfortunate, unpleasant cycle of getting right. through the hurdles that you need to get through. And right. a seller and a company's ability to get through that, to understand what's likely to be in the way of getting to yes, um, a final yes, and, um, and who you need to help make that choice and who you need to reassure and prove that you've got the stuff that is necessary. The more you can anticipate and be ready to answer those questions, um, which is hard, right? When you're first scaling up, maybe you've never even been through it before. So you're going to have to say um, to your first enterprise customer, help me know what needs to happen so that we can yeah. get to yes and, and start working with you. Yeah. Um, but that can be part of it, right? So that's one thing is just the natural cycle and being good at knowing what's coming and being ready for it. That can shorten your sales cycle if you do, right? Say, hey, we've done this five times before. Boom, here are the answers mm -hmm. you need. Here's the expert. <laughs> you need to talk to we you. already know <laughs> what you're going to ask. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's part of it. If you don't know that, takes longer. If you don't right. have it, takes longer. But right. I would say in other cases, that 12 to 18 months or two years or whatever the crazy length can be is because you've got an account <laughs> and you're talking to people in that account but you may or may not have truly established their pain or their need or their opportunity and connected it to some compelling event, some, some kind of urgency to make a decision, right? Yeah. If, if you're going in and giving them a nice to have, I heard, I, I like mm -hmm. this, I'm hearing this language more and more, right? Are you a vitamin or are you a medicine? Right. 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 And, and if you're a vitamin, eh, Maybe I want to think <laughs> yeah. it, maybe I don't. You know, if I have no urgency, now I'm feeling good today. You know, yeah. I got another vitamin over here I'm already taking. You know, it, that, that can be a really big problem. And I think right. sometimes the elongation there means you really haven't arrived at the either um, rational or emotional value that your buyers mm -hmm. and that buying group need. Yeah. And, and again, it's about understanding who is part of that group making a decision 
why are they talking to you? Maybe they're talking to you because they like you, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> then like just personally, back, you know? Like you're a cool friend. Hey, thanks. Thanks for the steak dinner. I really enjoyed that steak. Exactly. Yeah. And I got to say, I think one of the gifts of the pandemic is the end of the steak dinner, right? <laughs> right. Like, come on. I mean, maybe it helps. People want to buy from people they like, and I get it. Sure. You want to yeah. over a meal, over a coffee, over right. shared connections. Cool. But in the end, is that any, it, finance isn't going to let you say yes to a no. multi-million dollar contract because you had a nice steak. Yeah. They're just not. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, yeah. now, and, and so as you think about, you know, staying in touch through that long sales cycle, I think you really need to differentiate between whether it's a, the buyer's not really ready to buy, like we haven't created urgency for them to say yes. Therefore, mm -hmm. we're going to have to keep top of mind until they are ready or we are ready to identify that compelling event. Or it's because you're going through those hurdles and you just need to do that better and you'll learn over time. Right. But then there's kind of a third one that says, maybe you're not even that far into the sales cycle, right? You said, this is an account I'd like to sell to them. They fit my ICP. Um, theoretically, they could have a need, but we're just not there yet. And nor do I have any evidence that they're in market right now. Like a mm -hmm. lot of people are using intent data. Perfect, smart, mm -hmm. you should know what your buyers are doing or your prospects are doing. Even your customers, right? If they're searching on competitors, like you got yourself a problem, mm -hmm. but different story. So, so knowing, you know, where they are in their journey, if they're super early and you are going to have to help them to know that they should be working with you, then yeah, it's going to take a while, right? You've yeah. got to create that pain if it doesn't exist already, or you've got to help them see the promised land when right. they're like good where they are right now. Right. Um, and that then says, okay, especially in our all digital, all remote journey now, what things can you continue to put in front of them to help stay in touch efficiently? Not the circle back call from the rep necessarily. That's part of it, right? Connecting, but bringing value when you do. So marketing can supply reps with reasons to call, right? Right, right. Um, but marketing also keeping that drumbeat going inbound and outbound, staying top of mind, providing value to the people you know you need to connect with and providing value is super overused, but it just means being helpful, being useful, yeah. Yeah. you know, being creative and interesting at the very least. Yeah. Um, and I think if you do that, then you've got this really nice, um, you've got an enabled seller who has an efficient way to stay in touch and bring value to the people that they need to engage. And you've got a marketing organization that's using their tools, online experiences, content, um, smart analysis of buyer behavior and identifying when there's a moment you should be reaching right. out to, to make sure that that 12 to 18 months is used efficiently or, you know, you accelerate time to close at best. Yeah. And I've, I've been on the other side, the opposite side where, um, we're looking at the budget and it's like, okay, so like, you know, it's a little bit lower than we had hoped. Um, uh, what do we really need out of this list? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and I think back to your point about properly identifying that pain and saying, this is a problem that's going to cost you if you don't fix it mm -hmm. when, um, when they're looking at that budget it's the difference between like, uh, we can kind of do without it or like, yeah, I mean, we can't, we can't sleep on this. We're going to get hurt. And I feel like that's even before, like that's that, does that tend to be the individual contributors, the people who are like not the downstream finance and like the IT, like the gatekeepers, it's like the people who like really are in it and they understand the impact or like, do you have to get buy-in from them 
specifically the people who are going to use it and enough for them to champion it back to the gatekeepers? Well, that's where I think we're, we're beginning to see the convergence of product-led growth and account-based marketing, right? You'd cool. think that they're opposite ends of the spectrum and they kind of are, but especially for companies that want to move up market, they really ought to be best friends, right? <laughs> um, because if you think about product-led growth, the beauty of that is you're saying, hey, I'm creating a product that's so helpful that it sells itself, essentially. Mm -hmm. The experience and the individual value, whether emotional or rational, right? Whether it gives, makes me do my job faster, better, cheaper, whatever, or it makes me look like a hero um, and does something great for my career or whatever I want, or gets me more time with my kids because I do my job faster, whatever my goals are, right? Um, either of those, it's, it's embedded in the product experience, the way that it's designed and the way that you've got, I hate this term, but tech touch, right? Where you've got the, all the enablement is sort of baked in. It, it yeah. does its work. And and that is what creates users who become a community, whether you want a formal community or not, but they become this sort of tribe of people who love what you do and recommend it to others because they're like, hey, this is really helpful, man. Or, yeah. hey, we're all using this tool like a Slack or a Zoom. You right. should use it too so we can all talk to each other, right? Yeah. So it just, you create this virtuous cycle of value and growth. Now, um, that then creates champions who will go to their boss and say, hey, I've been using this tool or I used to use this tool at my old company and it worked really well. Do you think we could bring it here? Here's, it makes my life easier. I want it. Mm -hmm. That starts you up the chain of getting, yeah. you know, the influencers getting to the decision makers who then yeah. create the case for value. But that end user isn't going to create the value case for the CFO. Right. They can help you with awareness. They can help you with advocacy. They can help you with, confidence that once the tool is put in, people are actually going to use it, which is one right. of the big fears with software, right? Right. Um, but you want to tap into that, but not depend on it exclusively. So you need mm -hmm. the product-led growth component. What you, what, what you sell has to do what it says it will do on the tin mm -hmm. and make it easy for people to do so they're your raving fans. Your end users are your raving fans. On the other end, though, you need to say, okay, this is the kind of account. Here are the buyers in the account that I need to reach and the roles that they play. Who are my influencers, my ratifiers, my decision makers, and what, on what criteria are they making that decision or evaluation? Um, how do they like to engage with me? Um, what do they need, right? So you're doing both of them at the same time. Steady drumbeat from the product-led growth model of value, quality, advocacy, and complemented by smart, business justification of why this is the right tool at the high end with the people writing the checks. Yeah. And I think those two things really come together in a smart strategy. Um, and you, and I think if you have both, that's, that's unstoppable. That's awesome. So in terms of building relationships, it can be very difficult to do that through the internet. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are doing like robots, everyone's getting these robotic messages 10 times a day. And I know from the request, you've got a robot set up and you're just trying to get a bunch of people in. How do you see people making personal, still personal connections in this new landscape where we're all basically in our bedrooms or our living rooms? Like how do we build meaningful relationships with like meaningful business relationships with other people without falling into like, spam filters, like there's a lot of tactics 
that just feel gross. Like a lot of cold outbound email, like it feels gross. Like, you know, you have your chain of like, hey, first name, um, here's a product. Like think, think you want to do a 15 minute call or whatever. And then they'll circle back a week later. Hey, noticed you didn't open my email, but, and then you have the breakup email. So it's like, people are so used to this like spammy kind of interaction. Um, but I also think, you know, on the flip side, you've got people who have legitimate business problems that they would actually like to get fixed. So how would you see people, what's kind of like the best way to yes, still get engagement to still almost like shake hands with people that are in those high value accounts. How do you still engage without being spammy? Well, you asked a question early on kind of what's the line between account-based marketing and account-based selling. And I said, they're kind of two sides of a coin. The question I usually get is a different one, which is what's the difference between not account-based marketing and account-based marketing. (laughs) And I, I think it's kind of, in, bear with me, it'll answer your question, I think, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. Um, but it, to me, the line between account-based marketing and what I call marketing to accounts, and then on the extreme other end, just plain old marketing out randomly in the universe, is whether or not you know something about that account and that person, and you change what you say because of it. Yeah. Right. And the degree to which you change what you say because of what you know. Otherwise, I'm marketing to an account. I said, I would like to talk with you. I'm going to send you my standard spiel or I'm going to have my bot send you a standard spiel. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you're, probably, you're going to get the response you expect, which is very low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so on the other side of that, though, okay, so we're going account-based. And the first thought is, oh, great. Okay, I'm going to go into Joe's profile and I'm going to see that he just moved to Georgia. So maybe he's a Georgia Tech fan and I'm going to send him you know, something <laughs> from Georgia Tech. Okay, so that's fine. And, and we do see there is some kind of benefit to the idea of reciprocity. If I send you a present, maybe you'll pay attention to me for five seconds. But still, <laughs> I may or may not have anything useful to tell you. So that's not gonna be a long conversation or a long right. LinkedIn chain, right? Right. Um, so yes, that's account-based marketing, but it's not telling you anything that's going to make you want to talk to me about buying a solution that I sell necessarily, or maybe you'll talk to me, but you may or may not have a need. What I haven't done is gathered all the data that I could about Joe and the business you're part of. And well, what things are people like Joe searching for in that account? Are they in market for this or no? Like, do, do they appear to have some issue? How would I know if you had an issue? What information could I gather about your business or the market that you're in that would allow me to show you that I've spent some time getting to know your company and I'd like to get to know you because I believe I have something useful to share with you and even offering up something useful to share with you, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that truly is account-based marketing. Now that sounds very one-to-one. There are ways to do that in more one-to-few, one-to-many. Again, kind of data-driven. That's where our friends that AI and machine learning and all that cool stuff kind of come in because you can do that analysis faster and trigger valuable interactions off of it. Um, But it begins with just a true curiosity about the person on the other end of the profile, right? And the company on the other end of the profile and what they need and why they would want to talk to you and what you can bring them that other people can't. And that's where marketers have to do a good job of knowing the kinds of companies and buyers that they sell to, the vertical markets that they're in, the trends in those markets, um, and what things are likely to be a need for that customer. 
Yeah. And then providing your sellers, you know, some of the core assets that they can then put that layer of customization on top of to truly get you to say yes to a discussion and, and make it worth your while. Cool. That's very cool. In your experience, like this year, have you, um, from a practitioner standpoint, have you been like in the field, like selling anything or are you just strictly working in a consultative way, like post pandemic? Yeah. So both actually, I, I'm, I've been selling in that, I've, you know, and as marketing leader at Engageo, I was out there on sales calls with the team all the time. They were a fantastic sales team and I loved working with them. And, and I yeah. love going on sales calls because I love listening to what are you working on and, and might we be able to help and trying to make that connection or even right. just sharing information about account-based marketing to help people feel better about the strategy that they're trying to deploy and, and be yeah. excited about it. So lots of kind of sales participation. And then as a consultant, especially, you know, on my own, but also at winning by design, like I'm selling projects, right? Yeah. I'm out there trying to yeah. win business. Um, yeah. and writing proposals and and you know doing discovery and coming up with okay, I'm listening to what you're telling me. And is that a good fit for what I know how to do or now what winning by design knows how to do? And, and can I help you? And can I scope something that you're going to want to say yes to? Yeah. Um, so yeah, lots of selling actually. Yeah. Um, and all remote, right? Yeah. People talk about like new normal, you know, we're talking about this idea of like an old way of selling required that you, for like a large account, you'd fly out and you'd have the in-person steak dinner but, you know, do you think people will go back to that? I mean, now that you have the ability to, like everyone set up, everyone was kind of forced to adapt pretty quickly. And now everyone has this new capability and this is pretty normal to everyone. Do you think people will go back to the way it was? Or do you think that we will have a new way of operating? A little of each. Yes, I think that when we all are comfortable and safe um, getting together again. Um, I think we've all missed that in terms of just human contact for Pete's sake. I, got, mm -hmm. I was on the phone um, on, a, on a video call with someone who was in the middle of New York City yesterday and it was like cars and traffic and holiday yeah. lights. And I was like, oh, a city with people. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so nice. Real life. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm gonna miss, when it's safe, I will be delighted yeah. to get on the train yeah. and go meet in person. And I think there's yeah. something to be said for that. Now, will we assume that that is the default engagement model? No yeah. way. Yeah. I think we've all learned that you can do high level, complex, high dollar value or whatever right. your currency is sales, just like we're talking now, right? Person to person yeah. on video. Um, and, and it is not a condition of doing business to show up in person. So yeah. I, I, I believe people, and it's, it's super inefficient, right? Think of all the time you spend traveling and all the expense. Mm -hmm. Companies are going to be like, no way. I'm not yeah. spending that kind of money anymore. Yeah. And they shouldn't, right? Because it has yeah. an impact on the lifestyle and the happiness of their employees, which then right. has an impact on how engaged they are in, in working with our customers, right? Happy employees um, are much better brand ambassadors than unhappy ones. Entirely. That's very true. Yeah. Very true. So I, but I do, I think we'll, we'll see a little resurgence, but I also, I believe companies now have to master remote selling. And then I also think the change in the demographics of buying audiences. So 
people my age and older, you know, we're more used to, to engaging in person than mm-hmm. people younger than me. Right. And, yeah. and I think there's a whole generation of people who are like, what, I have to have an in-person meeting. Like, I don't <laughs> think so. You yeah. know, I may not even like care if you're on video or not, you right. know, at a certain point. And also I will want to engage when I want to engage. And maybe that's 10 o'clock at night and you don't want to do a call at 10 o'clock at night, but you sent me a video. So I'm going to watch right, that. When right. Playing. Asynchronous. Asynchronous, yeah. remote yeah. asynchronous. Um, with interspersed synchronous interactions, yeah. that's the future. Yeah. Um, and and limited face to face where it makes sense. I think we'll right. see what, how that balance shakes out, right? Some yeah, people yeah. are gonna want to go back to an office, some people aren't, but we'll see. Yeah. But I think it's gonna be a blend for the foreseeable post pandemic, it'll be a blend. Yeah. But with a heavy kind of tilt towards um, remote asynchronous. Right. And do, do you think people, cause I mean, you know, there's almost nothing like connecting over lunch, you know, yeah. like it's just, it is a magical thing, especially if you're going to a nice restaurant and it's like, oh, this food's so great. And you're like, it's like when you leave lunch, it's like, we're best buds now, you know, we're gonna, we're in this for the long haul. That's like how it feels. Yeah. Um, and like, do you think that we'll still have those kinds of interactions maybe like a little bit later in the sales cycle? Like maybe not the first, the first meeting isn't, isn't going to be like that, but maybe like two or three down the road. And we're like, when you re- really understand like, okay, this is probably an account that we want to pursue. It's worth meeting up and now it's worth it rather than like your very first, your very first point of contact. I would say yes. I think people are going to be particular about how they invest their in-person time because it's limited, you know, and it will be limited for the foreseeable future, I think. So um, they're going to be careful. But here's my advice to buyers is um, while you may want to have lunch with the salesperson, right, the account manager or the account executive or whomever you've been talking to, because they're friendly, they're going to be personable. That's the personality that's great at sales. Um the people that you really want to meet are the ones that are going to be working with you after you buy. You want to leave lunch with that onboarding specialist, right. that customer success leader or customer success person or account manager who's going to take over the account and yeah. feel like you're best buddies with them because that's yeah. the person you're going to be working with. Yeah. This actually segues perfectly into another thing I wanted to ask you about. What is it about post-sale that seems to be neglected? Like why why the overemphasis on year-over-year growth on new accounts and then once they're closed it's like all right did it done but like retention and you're talking about a recurring revenue model retention is like a major part of that so but but it seems like that's not a given equal weight what why do you think that is Oh Lord, I have no idea. Well, I, and it's, I I agree with you. Huge mistake. Like biggest mistake a business can make. It is all about what, what happens after that person buys my very favorite stat from serious decisions that we ever came up with. And it came out of three cycles of our giant B2B buying study, right? Where we're interviewing buyers. Why do you buy? Why do you buy? Why do you buy? And we went into detail. What do you do in this stage? What do you do in that stage? But we always ask the question in the end, what had the biggest influence on why you bought? And the answer was always, my experience with the brand or what I heard about other people's experience with the brand. 80% of yes is what happens after people buy. And I don't think that's changed, but I agree with you that companies are, especially marketing and sales, right? Way over rotated towards in particular with marketing top of the funnel. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of a legacy of 
the whole like marketing automation, um, finally being able to link marketing leads to revenue, you know, I, I get it, you know, marketing needed to get a seat at the table. So they needed to attach themselves to numbers that were hard to argue with, easier to prove right. based on the tech right. you had. And most right. of that is going to be about pre-sale. Mm -hmm. um, because once it's post-sale, it's sort of hard to say, oh, well, marketing found that cross-sell opportunity, because but the rep's going to be like, no way they did. Or the customer success person right. going to be like, no, I right. found that. You know? <laughs> and, and so this, this focus on who gets credit and who gets the announcement in Slack chat about right. who won, like, right. all of those kind of old ways of thinking about what's goodness um, yeah. are over-rotated to pre-sale. And then you get yeah. to the win. But to your point, I, I really hope, and God knows I'm trying to do my best to help make this happen, but companies need to focus on what happens after customers buy and say, how do I ensure that the impact this customer said yes to is what in fact we deliver and right. by the way, make them happy and perhaps provide some surprise and delight along the way. Right. And that if companies can shift to that and be comfortable with the metrics that come out of it, Right. So increases in lifetime value, reduction in customer acquisition cost because right. I'm selling more to people I know. So they say yes faster, right. um, improved product quality because I'm constantly listening to my customers and bringing that feedback back into my development cycles. Right. Um, all of those things, you know, it, it's not as clear as closed one or marketing sourced, but right. it is, I would argue, even more important. Yeah. Right. And churn, if you're churning yeah. more than, you know, if, if you're outselling your cancels, as my old boss used to say, um, you were not winning. Right. You're just treading water. Oof. Yeah, that is the truth. Yeah. And, and I kind of wonder if it's like, it's almost like, a, like you're focusing on yourself rather than others. So it's like, oh, wow, we yeah. want to hit, we want to hit the target. And it's like, our investors want to see this number and the top line has to go like this. I don't, I don't know if I'm doing that backwards from your perspective. It's like, no, no, it's up. You know. You're going up into the right. Our investors want to see this. And I guess there's so much like direct and immediate pressure on that. Like the board meetings and the investors, they need to see that. And maybe that's why the focus is upside down. But if you're in the customer's shoes, that's like all they care about. And like this, this, the trepidation, even while they're considering buying, it's like, um, we would love it. We love the idea. Um, but we're just kind of scared when well, they may not even say that, but maybe that's why they're dragging their feet. Maybe that's not, I mean, that's why they're not allocating budget. Cause it's like, love the idea, but I'm just, I have this feeling of uncertainty about it. But the truth of the matter is that if you're actually focusing on the right thing, if you're focusing post-purchase, then a lot of the, that trepidation and a lot of that friction in the sales cycle can be removed because you're like, oh yeah, well, we'll put you in touch with these other customers. They love us and you can just talk to them because they're raving fans and then the friction's gone. Yeah. You've created a virtuous cycle, right? Where... Yeah. Happy customers tell other people that they're happy, which makes it easier for them to say yes. And that happy customer is more likely to stay with you. And, and the way that I encourage people to think about it is look at what a 1% improvement in your retention rate would mean to your revenue growth and your profitability. 
it's usually huge. And investors are more and more, they're looking at retention. They understand the whole flywheel concept, right? Mm -hmm. You can't keep churning customers and sell right. more. That that runs out of steam faster right. now than ever. Yeah. And you've got to have that foundation of growth. And small improvements in retention rates um, mean often big improvements in profitability yeah. uh, and big improvements in um in revenue because you're you've got a steady base so any growth is truly growth it's not making up for lost ground right so if you calculate that number it, you suddenly you're having a different conversation it's like okay what do i need to do to ensure that i get that improvement like what what causes people to leave what do i have to do differently to get them to stay and let's do that watch and then money in the bank yeah. and i see a lot of companies just like you take a scientific approach to understanding your conversion rates Right. through the sales cycle, right? right? What happens? Why do people drop out in stage two or whatever? Right. Lots of science and math applied there. Apply the same science and math to your post-sale phases right. and understand what actions will help predict and get you to a good outcome and go do them. It's, it's right. really not that hard. Yeah. Um, you just have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's like in the CAC LTV formula, we've got CAC figured out. Like, yes, you could say down to the cent, but then mm -hmm. LTV is like, well, you know, you kind of like, depends on the churn and it's like it's the LTV is sort of like a fuzzy number doesn't have to be yeah. I know exactly what a company of your size and type can buy from me I know which buying centers I can sell to I know what I can sell to them and based on how big you are I know how much I can sell so there's a math problem there's my potential okay. lifetime value is calculable okay. right fine done now I can also look at and what have what are you already buying from me and where do I have upside right. And based on what you're buying from me, where do I have downside risk? There you go. Cool. Not that hard. Very few people do it. Yeah. Huh. That's cool. That's, Works every time, is, by the way. Once it, you get those numbers, yeah. CFOs love those numbers. In fact, yeah. <laughs> and I used to sit down and we literally did a presentation, how to sell customer experience to your CFO. Yeah. He was like, hey, listen, you come yeah. to me with anything with financials like that, where you tell me a 1% improvement yeah. can get me this and profitability and you back it up with yeah. reality. I'm going to say, yes, of course. It's great well, for that, business. Yeah. And I'm going to help you make that case to other people because the, the numbers just play out. All you need to do is use those numbers in your favor and be honest about the places where you're having trouble. But usually they're pretty fixable. Uh, I would love, I would love to see a diagram of what you just said, because I think that's the key to flipping, to flipping the, the over-focus. Yeah, I'd love to, sure. I'd love to see it like out on a piece of paper because that's, um, that's definitely, that was pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, great online. Winning by Design actually has a lot. The part of what attracted me to work with them is yeah. they've actually got that math. Pre oh, they have that? Super cool. Yeah. Cool. Not exactly the way that I just laid it out. They've got it broken out into a few different pieces, but check out um, on the Winning by Design website. There are a ton of um, research papers and, and then there's a ton of stuff on YouTube too, like a million yeah. videos of explaining yeah. that kind of model um, yeah. and other things. And it's super helpful. Um, so I would recommend if you want to look at that, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, it's just this massive math's been around for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. People have been talking about it. It's just, I don't know why companies haven't embraced it Yeah. as much. Yeah. I was, I was checking out, um, I think his name is Jaco. Is it Jaco? Jaco. He's awesome. He, I was checking out his, uh, YouTube content. He, he reminds me of, um, state of trance by Armin van Buren. 
Ooh, I, I don't know. I haven't seen that. I, I suspect that he is inspired by State of Trance because he's like, here's something to say. And he like turns up the music a little bit. <laughs> so <laughs> it's great. He keeps it pretty lively. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and he um, he's helping train, you know, new people coming into the company on how to keep it nice and lively. Like we don't have right. his same personality, but the idea right. <laughs> is how do you make an, an asynchronous online experience right. something that keeps you paying attention? Yeah, that's hard. It is hard, <laughs> especially when you're talking about um, graphs and math. Right, exactly. Even yeah. worse, you're talking about yeah. math. Attention, <laughs> right? But when it's math with dollars involved, I don't right. know. Start there you go. A more <laughs> that's awesome. Say you've got a software company that's heard this and they, they like what you're talking about. How do they uh, learn more about what you do? How do they reach out to you? Like what's their next steps? Yeah, I would say for me personally, LinkedIn, you know, to your point and have a decent pitch. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> not even me, a pitch oh, at I've all. I've got a software platform you should look at. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, LinkedIn is step one um, for yeah. me personally, or um, definitely by all means visit Winning by Design. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, sort of directing people to those resources and that for a next step to see, does this seem like a fit for your business? Um, but I'm always happy to answer people's questions about account-based marketing, customer engagement, customer retention, um, the math of it. I'm always happy to answer questions about that. I think that's my sort of personal uh, evangelical mission is to get people thinking about it. it has been for a long time. And it sounds like you've really, you've really synced up with the right team too. That's, that's like so it. exciting. They're, they're good people. Yeah. So cool. Well, Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. And it was really great to talk to you. Oh, thanks, Joe. Appreciate you having me as a guest. <laughs> yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a rating and a comment on the Apple Podcasts app that helps boost. Uh, <laughs> that helps to feed the algorithm to make the algorithm happy and like us. Be sure to smash that subscribe button because things are going to be picking up pretty good on the Moving Up Market podcast. Thank you.